If you're able, I would encourage you to rise as we read God's Word together this morning from the seventh chapter of Zechariah, where we will be reading uh, verses 1 to 14. So hear the reading of God's Word. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regmemelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words of the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they, may not, that, that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. The reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is found in your word. And so, Holy Spirit, carry your word now to hearts and lives today. Mold and shape us to be more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to do something with you all this morning, and it's not often that I ask for some response, but we're going to have some just quick little true and false questions, four of them to be exact, and I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand, and I'll say, is it true or false, and you'll get the idea. So here's the first question, right? In Scotland, the unicorn is their national anthem. If you, animal, sorry, not their anthem, animal. If you think that's true, raise your hand. Got three. If you think it's false, raise your hand. Everybody else, raise your hand. The answer is true. The unicorn is the national animal of Scotland. So, all right, so another one. When the two numbers on opposite sides of the dice are added together, the result is always seven. True? False. No, you got to answer one or the other, people. It's not that hard. Come on. True? False. True. All right, so maybe this is a little bit better one, right? You, you should be able to get this one, I think. Mickey, Mickey Mouse. Mickey's given name has initially been Milton Mouse. True? False. False. His name was Mortimer Mouse. Got you. The capital of Australia is Sydney. Raise your hand. True? False? Ah, false. Canberra. These may be interesting little questions about true and false, but it begins to 
pry and, 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 and investigate our hearts and our lives, but it's an important part of being human, isn't it, actually, to answer these kind of questions. We have an innate and an inherent desire and need to know whether something is true or something is false. It's part of being created in the image of God, isn't it? But whether it's, it's Mortimer Mouse or Milton Mouse, we still want to know what's true and what is false. It's part of who we are. It's, it's part of how we go about life. It's a fundamental part of our DNA, a part of being created, as I said, in the image of God. This is the result of being created in the image of God. It's also an understanding. It's also helps us understand more of who God is, right? For we want to know what's true about God and and what's false about God. It's just a curiosity that we innately have. But we know some things about God. We, We know that he's the author of truth. We know that he gives us his word, which is the definition of truth. We know these things. But those of us who live on this side of Genesis 3 in the sin and brokenness of life, Truth isn't always what defines who we are and how we go about life. For as much as we want to know about truth and we want to know what truth means and what truly is true, for many of us, the falseness of life is often what defines us. We know just as much about being false as we do about being right. And we even saw that play itself out here this morning. Not everybody got them all correct but we understand falseness. This then is the tension that we live in day in and day out. It's it's a tension that we find ourselves living in today. What is true about our world that we live in today? What's true about the information that we receive? Who do we trust? Who can I trust? What's false? What are the narratives that we're supposed to believe in? We know this tension in so many real ways this morning, don't we? And it's, it gives us anxiety, and it gives us anger and frustration. It gives us hope. It gives us joy all at the same time. And it's this weird, odd, strange dilemma that we live in. And it's even more poignant, right, in an age of relativism, relativism that we understand what's true. Because the lines now have gotten a bit more fuzzy, haven't they, in our day and age? Well, your truth is truth because it's your truth. And my truth is truth because it's my truth. And you can't question my truth, otherwise it's not true. Right? This is the world that we live in. So how do we know what is true and how do we know what is false? And this is what we're living out. If I were to told you to go to Australia tomorrow morning, I've got a first-class ticket paid for you, and I want you to go to the capital of Australia. I want you to document it. I want you to take photos of the capital of Australia, and I want you to show me and tell me everything you possibly can about the capital of Australia. And if you ended up in Sydney, we'd have a problem because Canberra is the capital of Australia, and now we have the tension that we feel, right? And this is what's at play here in Zechariah chapter 7, believe it or not. What is true and what is false? And how do we know the difference? Here in Zechariah, the Lord does not pull any punches with the message that is to go out to the people of Israel. He is clear to define, he clearly defines, I should say, what is true religion and what is false religion. And there's really no gray area here. He just simply tells it how it is. So this morning, this is what is before us in very real ways. What is true religion? What is false religion? 
These are pretty straightforward things, pretty straightforward questions to ask and possibly even to answer. The harder question may be that's before us is, which one do I have? Do I have a true religion, a true faith, or do I have a false one? Did I raise my hand for true, or did I raise my hand for false? As we approach this text, we must again attempt to make the connection with what the people of Israel were wrestling with at the time that this message was given to them and why the Lord is speaking to them here and now about the difference between true religion and false religion. If we find the answer to that, then we can begin to understand what it is this Old Testament book is saying to us here on this Sunday morning. So let's dive in. There are four feasts at the people of Israel, four, two feasts and two fasts, I should say, four moments of commemoration of the siege of Jerusalem that, as we've said here in Zechariah, the people have, they, they're returning back from being captive by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. They've been celebrating these feasts and fasts for 70 years, since the time of the siege of Nebuchadnezzar, through their time of captivity, and even now up until to this time when Zechariah is talking about them. These feasts and fasts are the following. On the ninth day of the fourth month, April, right, nine, they mourned the breaching of the wall. The wall was breached, and they mourned, they fast, right? The second one that they celebrate, on the 18th day of the fifth month, May 18, you get the idea now, right? They fasted for the burning of the city and the temple. The third one that they celebrated, on the third day of the seventh month, July 3rd, not 4th, but July 3, they remembered the murder of Gedaliah, the governor. On the tenth day of the tenth month, October 10, they fasted to recall the day Nebuchadnezzar set up a siege around the city. And now two years have passed since the last time that Zechariah spoke, or the Lord spoke through Zechariah, and, and things were beginning to take shape, right? No more was there rubble just everywhere. No more was it a, a city in ruin, but they had cleaned up a little bit, and the wall was beginning to come back. The temple was beginning to be rebuilt. The, the, the city was gaining some more traction of, of an understanding of, oh, yes, things are happening. There's momentum, there's excitement, and, and things are going well. There was hope in this city that restoration, uh, that the building project would be complete, all of these things, right? We have some of that here in our church too. We're getting closer to the end of our building project that seemed to have lasted a long time for things out of our control, but we understand this. There's hope. There's, there's hope that it actually will come to a, a finality. There was an underlying sentiment that perhaps they didn't need to fast and feast anymore because the end was near. And we don't have to remember what happened in Jerusalem so many years ago. So it must have been a shock to the system when Zechariah, some years later now, from the word of the Lord comes and they hear this. They hear these words from the Lord. And it's not just a vision, but this is actually the word of God coming to Zechariah. Say this to the people of Israel. Say it to them now. When there's hope, when you can see the finish line, the Lord pressed into their hearts, pressed into the question that we asked this morning. What is true? What is false? And which one do you have? The Lord condemned their worship. 
He condemned their spirituality. He condemned the religion of the people. He condemned their fasts and their feasts. And he did so with three scathing questions. The first was, when you fasted and mourned on May 18th and July 3rd for the last 70 years, was that for me or was that for you? The second, actually it was two questions, I'm sorry, not three, two questions. And when you eat and when you drink the other two times, did you not do that for yourselves? The Lord's asking, what is your motivation of worship? Why are you doing what you're doing? And is it for you or is it for me? The question then that must be asked about true religion is how do we know what is true and what is not? True religion, according to the word of the Lord in Zechariah 7, is one that is directed towards God. And it's directed towards other people. And it's lived out in everyday life. How do I know what's true religion and what's false religion? How do I know if it's Mortimer or Mickey? Is your worship directed towards God? Is it directed towards other people? And do you live that out in everyday life? These are the questions that are before us, and this is what Zechariah 7 has for us this morning. So in verses 4 to 7, we see that the Lord is condemning a heart issue. Not a worship issue, but a heart issue of the people. They have been fasting and feasting for 70 years. They've been doing what they're supposed to be doing for a very long time. I'm almost 50, and that seems old, and they've been doing these feasts for 20 more years than I've been alive. Every year four times a year. They've been observing the feast. They've been remembering. They've been worshiping. They've been doing all the things that the Lord has told them to do. They were doing the right things. They were flying straight. They were flying high. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing. But that's not enough, according to God. But here the Lord speaks into that worship, into their actions, and into their hearts, and says, no. Often we're told that the word of the Lord is like a scalpel, right? that it makes these fine incisions and does heart surgery and, 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 and pokes and prods at our heart. And I think that's usually a pretty good illustration of what the Word of the Lord does for us. But I think here in Zechariah 7, it's not a scalpel. It's more of like a club. Is it for you or is it for me? And the heart surgery is, is, is more like the club trying to shock the heart back into life. It's not this small little incision, but it's a blunt instrument that the Lord uses to say it's simply not enough to remember. It's simply not enough to do. It's simply not enough just to go through the motions. That's not what the Lord is after. This is not what He wants from us, especially from the ones that proclaim to be children of God. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah and says it's not enough to go through the motions. As a matter of fact, that flies in the face of what the Lord desires from us. For he says that worship, true religion, is supposed to be directed not to us, but to him. It's meant to be for the glory of the Lord. True religion has at its core the Lord. Has at its core worship of God. If we are worshiping in any other way, according to Zechariah 7, we have a false worship. This abounds in our day as well, doesn't it? 
for many of us, we go to church and we come into church and we, we expect to, to get something out of it. Can I be a better father, a better mother, a better husband, a better wife? Can I be a better pastor, a better deacon, elder, employee, employer? What can I get out of it? How can I fly higher? How can I fly straighter? This is what we want. This is what we try to get out of church and worship, don't we? The word of the Lord then begins to correct how we go about things, corrects our understanding and says worship is solely about the glory of the Lord. And if it's not about that, then we need to be recalibrated into understanding what is really worship and to focus then on the praise and the glory and the honor of God that he deserves because nobody else is worthy of that glory and who he is and what he's accomplished This week, Russia is in the news for all sorts of reasons. And I must admit that they're not really good reasons this week. I'm going to not get these names correct, so Blake and Kathy, please forgive me. If you have friends with these last names, I'm sorry. Anna Sherbakova, gold medal. Alexandra Trusova, silver medal. Kaori Sakamoto. She's not Russian. She's Japanese. Bronze medal. These are the results of the women's figure skating at this year's Winter Olympic Games, but these women were not the story of this Winter, winter Games, were they? For the, for, the, for the woman who finished fourth was actually the story of the Winter Games. Camila Valieva. She finished fourth, and she was the, 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 the favorite going into the Olympics, and she was touted at 15 years old to be the greatest skater perhaps ever to ever go on the ice at 15 years old, and she was wonderful. And then it came out that she tested positive for a banned substance from the Olympic Committee. And yet she was still allowed to compete in this event, and so the night came, and this week came, and, they, and they, the skaters went out, and they, they skated, and she was supposed to, to set the world ablaze with her talent, and she fell a number of times in her gold medal performance, and she finished fourth, and she skated off the ice in tears, and it was a, a dramatic moment, but she wasn't the only one in tears. The girl who got second was in tears. Because after the scores were announced, she realized that she didn't win gold, and she thought, sure, she had won gold because her performance was far more technical than everybody else's. The girl who got third was sobbing with tears of joy that I've never seen before, and she was extremely happy. And the girl who got fourth was crying tears of sorrow and shame and all sorts of emotions. But all that was not the drama that I noticed on this scene as they covered these girls. For there was one who wasn't crying. There was a gold medalist, Anna Sherbakova, sat in a room all by herself. No one there to congratulate her. No one there to lift her up for the glory that she deserved as a gold medal winner of the Olympic Games. She did the work. She accomplished what was supposed to have accomplished, and she deserved the glory. She deserved the honor. She was the one that deserved to have the the coaches celebrate her, and she was sitting in a room all alone. It was full of drama and sadness. 
for she deserved it. And yet the one that was broken, the one that broke, got the glory, got the TV time, got the drama. How many times is that our stance of worship as well? We focus on our brokenness. We focus on who we are, our needs. We focused on how terrible our lives are and our, 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 our unmet expectations. And we put the camera on our hearts. We put the camera on our lives. And we say, what about me? I should have gotten gold because I deserve it. Or, oh, I am awful and I'm terrible and I'm rotten because I didn't perform what I was supposed to perform. What about me? And the one who deserves it? The one who has accomplished everything that we need in our lives? We take the glory from him when we do that. When we focus on ourselves and what it is that we get out of it, the camera's on us. When we enter into worship, the camera of our hearts and our lives and our eyes focuses in on a cross, on an empty grave, on what he has accomplished, which is far more than any gold medal performance could ever even imagine. This is why we come to church, friends, to say to Jesus, we love you and praise you for what you have accomplished and the glory that you deserve and the honor that you have. And then that fills our lives. That gives us identity. That gives us hope. That covers our tears. That covers our sorrows. That covers our ailments. When we have our focus on Him, it's the Lord God that does this for us. In our brokenness and sin, we've fallen more than twice, more than four times. We've been caught more than once. We are guilty. And yet the Lord in His goodness and mercy sacrificed Himself for us in order that our tears, as we skate off the ice, fallen once again, those tears would be wiped away. This is what the Lord does for us. And here in Zechariah 7, the Lord is demanding and I understand that every illustration breaks down. I get it. But the Lord demands that he doesn't sit alone. That the camera's on him. True worship is directed towards God. And God alone. Following the strong words of exhortation about what true religion is, we go now into verses 8 to 10. He tells the people just exactly what religion is. It's not only directed towards God, but true religion to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a person of the Lord, is that the Lord challenges us to direct that to other people, right? He challenges us to, 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 to do those things, to, to do to trust, to true justice, mercy, to love the widow and to care for them and the poor and the oppressed. It takes it one step further and says it's not only about God, but it's also about other people. 
administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil. In other words, true religion first has the Lord as the primary focal point, and then others come next. As a matter of fact, true religion has us moving into the margins. For the people that he names here are not the people in the mainstream. They're the people on the outside, the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the broken, the beaten, the tired, the hungry. Those who don't know true justice. True religion means moving into those areas. Moving into the areas that may not be so comfortable for us. Moving into places where others hurt, where others need help to serve and to love. And it's not a matter of convenience of saying, I want to do this or I don't want to do that. That's not what God is saying. He's saying we serve other people. We love other people. This is who we are as people of Jesus Christ. To move in and towards people. Why? Because Jesus moved in and towards me and you. And he did it willingly. He took the nails. He took the beatings. He took the cross. He took death and he moved into the margins of your life. He says, true religion does the same thing. When I was a boy, um, I'm 47 years old and that puts me in high school in the early 90s. Maybe it's older than some of you want to remember, but in those days of the early, late 80s and early 90s, there was one guy that everybody wanted to be. And he wore a red uniform, and there were two numbers on his chest, and those were the two and a three, and he played for the Chicago Bulls, and his name was Michael Jordan. And every boy that I knew wanted to be Michael Jordan. We once, when I started high school, our shorts were like here. By the end of high school, our shorts were here, Why? Because Michael Jordan had shorts that went down to his knees. Our shoes were no longer Chuck's, Converse, but they were Air Jordans. Why? Because Michael Jordan wore his shoes, and everybody wanted Jordan's shoes. Even to this day, by the way, people still want Jordan's shoes, and they still want the Jumpman on their shirt. To this day, after 30 years, people still want to be Michael Jordan. We draw ourselves to things that we want to be. We imitate people that we want to be. We look up to people that we want to be. And true worship says, I want to be like Jesus. Not Michael Jordan. Not John Elway. But I want to be like Jesus. And who is Jesus? He moved into the margins, He moved to the poor. He moved to the outcast, to the widow, to the adulteress, to the leper, to the blind. And he says, I love you. And he moves to Ryan Arkema. And he says, I love you. True religion looks like Jesus. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, And saying true religion is just a matter of, hey, be like Jesus, fly straight, fly high, and everything's going to be all right for you. That's not what Zechariah 7 is saying. For remember the feasts and remember the fast that the people were celebrating. Remember where they are right now. The Lord took them out of that. 
He took them out of Egypt. He took them out of slavery. And he's brought them back to a place of restoration. He's brought them, brought them back to himself. And he says, look at what I've done for you. Do you not see? Do you not understand? This is why you should go to the poor. This is why you should go to the oppressed. This is why you should go to the margins. Because I brought you out of slavery. I went into Babylon and I took you out. I went into Egypt and I took you out. And I brought you to myself. And I died on the cross for you. I went to the grave for you. Why? Because of his amazing grace and love. And he says, I've done that for you. And that moves in our hearts. That grace, that mercy, the mercy of the Lord that lived and died and rose again for us now defines our religion, defines what true religion is and defines who we are. And he says, do likewise. Go make disciples. And I will be with you while you do it. And I will never leave. I will never forsake. I will never leave you in the margins I will always, always be with you. This is the mercy of the Lord. And this is what Zechariah 7 is saying, that what is it about true religion that we have God as the primary gift of who we are? He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. This is what a saving relationship with Jesus looks like. That we will not only imitate God and have his characteristics as ours, but in addition, we have Jesus. We have God as ours, and he's the greatest gift that we could ever hope for. God gave himself to be ours. He gave himself to redeem us, just as we're told in Titus chapter 2. True religion religion is to know that reality, that Jesus gave himself for you that we recognize that we need desperately a Savior. And we have that in the gift and the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And the Holy Spirit then applies that mercy and that righteousness to our hearts and to our lives. He molds us and shapes us to be more like Him. That then is the mercy of the Lord, that He gave Himself to be ours. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26 Whom have I in heaven but you? In other words, what do I desire most? What is the one thing that I want more than anything else? To jump from the free throw line and dunk? Yeah, that would be awesome. But what in heaven do I have most? And the psalmist continues, There is nothing on earth I desire more than I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's nothing I desire more than you. What does God then want in return? Love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength directed towards God. Love their neighbor as yourself directed towards others. This is true religion. Why? How do we do this? Because he first loves you. And he gave himself for you as your Savior. The mercy of the Lord. Let's pray.
Dear Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for who you are and that you gave yourself to us as a gift. And so, Lord, grow in our hearts and our minds and our lives. Fuel inside of us a desire to long for nothing other than you and you alone. For you have given us all of yourself. You've given all of your life, all of your mercy, grace, and righteousness, and given it to us. May that then fuel us to worship you and you alone. May that fuel us to go into the margins, to love our neighbors, to serve each other, because you first loved and served us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen.